Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stamwell Major. In this episode we're continuing with Alain Collaz's Around the World Alone and we're on the third section of Chapter 5. Chapter 5 continued. Monday, January 21st. Dawn was purple this morning, there was no wind and the barometer is falling. The cirrus and stratus clouds are tinged with pink and the south seems to be catching its breath for a really hard blow. I let us run in order to set the heavy Genoa and suddenly at 1900 hours there was a misadventure which could have turned into a tragedy. The tang of the mainstay broke off and it was a miracle that we did not lose the mast. While I had refitted the mast and the rigging before leaving so that I had a very solid system that could resist almost any amount of stress, I had not paid as much attention to the shoring of the masts. Now it was the stainless steel plate which secures the forward shoring of the mast to the deck that had just broken, like a piece of glass. These stainless steel plates were the only parts of the rigging that I did not replace, and they have therefore been with the boat since it was built. It is truly a miracle that I did not lose a mast. In fact, it is the only instance I know of where the anchoring of the mainstay gave way and the mast remained intact. Fortunately, it is an extremely sturdy mast and the rigging is eminently seaworthy, for at that moment everything was supported by the natural rigidity of the mast and its lateral shrouds. To effect repairs, I used the tangs from the lower mizzen stays after using the sharp end of a pickaxe to drill a hole. The temperature was hovering between 34 and 36 Fahrenheit. The wind was blowing in great gusts and waves were breaking over the deck. After two hours of work, I was certain that I would never again be able to lift my arm. I had the heat running full blast, of course, which brings me to another problem. Once more, I am having trouble with the generator. It is becoming more and more difficult to start it up. We are now underway again, using our number one jib and running before the wind. It is, of course, impossible to get a reading of my position because of all this fog and drizzle. I'm getting a bit tired of an invisible sun and having to estimate a position which, by now, goes somewhat beyond approximate. All I need now is to sight an iceberg across my bow. Apparently, I am between the devil and the deep blue sea, so to speak. On one side is a low-pressure area that is creating a very unpleasant swell. On the other, a weather front from a low-pressure area to the south and as the barometer is still falling, I am being very careful and limiting my sail area. Late in the evening, despite my experience this morning, I decided to run up the heavy Genoa, just like the horseman who is thrown and feels he must climb right back on the horse. There were problems with the slides pinching the stay because the rawhide lashings have stretched. When I have time, I'm going to have to redo the whole thing with regular rigging line, which is still the best thing. To cap the whole thing, the bottom of my oilskin suddenly decided to dump as much icy water as possible into my boots. It has been a somewhat less than perfect day, but then it is all of a pattern with the past few days as a whole. First of all, there were those gigantic waves at least 40 feet high that made it necessary for me to stay at the helm for 15 hours without a break. So, for the first time I broke out a little storm jib that I'd never used before and entrusted Manareva to this handkerchief-sized sail and to the automatic pilot. I should add that, at that point, the wind had fallen from 60 to 40 knots, but it took a long while for the sea to calm down a bit. I'm quite proud that Manareva got through the whole thing so well, and just as proud that I knew, almost instinctively, how the old Cape Horn sailors handled the waves 
always keeping the stern into them and never, under any circumstances, letting one of them catch the boat broadside. Obviously, tomorrow is going to be a day devoted to chores and repairs. Tuesday, January 22nd. At these latitudes, dawn is very early, around 0230. Night, which is really a sort of bright dusk, lasts only four hours or so. I woke to gusts of 50 knots, so I brought down the mizzen and stayed on watch until 0600. It was still cloudy, but little by little, the sun finally condescended to peek out and I was able to get a reading of sorts. I am at 53 degrees south and 122 degrees 30 minutes west, about 1,800 miles off Cape Horn. I wonder if I'll make it by the end of the month. In any case, we are underway, using the heavy Genoa and not paying too much attention to our exact course. The chart table is being studiously ignored, and I am doing some reading. I am becoming increasingly concerned about the groaning sounds from the steering mechanism when the automatic pilot is working. They seem to be getting worse. I'm going to have to try to find out what is going wrong. I had very clear contact with RTL via Sunley Radio, and I told of the latest misadventure that deprived me of the mainsail. I learned that Teura had telephoned and left a message for me to try to call her in Tahiti on frequency 2181, a sweet, if somewhat belated, constellation. Wednesday, January 23rd. Things have gone from bad to worse. The generator absolutely refuses to start, and I opened a new jerry can of water to find that it has been polluted by seawater. I wasted half a day tinkering with the generator, fiddling with the various circuits, filters, plugs, injectors, at the end of the day, I finally managed to get it started after eight or ten unsuccessful attempts. The sun set this evening in a bed of ominous black and purple clouds, followed shortly by a hailstorm which played a magnificent solo on the resonant metal hull. I had a remarkably clear connection with my family in France at midnight and brought them up to date on my progress, my problems, my hopes. I also asked them to pass on this information to Tintin, I have by no means forgotten my commitments to that magazine, but I can't get in touch with them directly because of the necessity for using my batteries as little as possible. Great Britain, too, should round Cape Horn today. According to Endurance, the escort ship provided by the Royal Navy for the race, the weather at the Horn is all that could be hoped for. Cape Horn is very much on my own mind. Since the wind put my headsail out of commission and snapped a halyard, the weather has been so bad in these parts that I haven't been able to repair the damage. I've been up the mast, but I was not able to stay up long enough to rig the halyard properly. For the past 12 days, it seems I've spent all my time running between the deck and the tool chest. I have only one thing in mind, to round the cape as far from shore as possible and to get away as fast as possible. I really had my fill of high-latitude winds. I've changed my routine aboard Manoreva. I am now staying on watch all night and sleeping a few hours during the forenoon. When I get right down to it, I suppose I should not complain too much about my situation. After all, even the story of the mainmast ended happily, at least to the extent that the mast is still standing. Being at sea has accustomed me to expect anything and to be willing to bear anything. Troubles and problems run off my back like water off a ship's hull. Thursday, January 24th. There is a leak above the chart table which, given its location, is particularly bad. It must come from one of the cabin portholes and run along the aluminum inner planking. This close to the cape, a leaky boat is all I need. I'm still giving the weather reports to the Whitbread boats every day after I get the news of the race, and they in turn tell me where the ice is located. 
a new problem. The anemometer is swinging from the line atop the mast. Possibly a bird hit it. In any event, I'm going to have to shinny up there and repair it. Meanwhile, I've rigged up a clue for the Genoa. If we continue to make our seven or eight knots until tomorrow, I may be able to save the anemometer and, at the same time, get a decent night's sleep for a change. The radio is chattering away like a flock of hens. The noise does not make navigation any easier, but I can imagine how I would feel if it were all in Japanese. At midnight, despite all my good intentions, I ran up the light jib. Friday, January 25th. The wind is good and we are sailing with the wind on the quarter. I took a nap at 0600. I'm trying to rest as much as possible for the encounter with the Cape. Once more, the generator is on the blink. I started it up and it ran for eight whole minutes with much clanking and grinding before petering out. I've gone over all the lines and circuits, cooling, fuel, electric, but it refuses to start again. I've noticed puffs of exhaust fumes at the air intake of the warm-up motor, but I don't know enough about it to draw any conclusions. The barometer has been plummeting all day and it now stands at 29.4 degrees. Yet at sunset, the sky seemed to be clearing and for a while the depressing greys were enlivened by bright reds and golds. The tally for the week is not too bad. We've covered 1,400 miles exactly for a total of 4,925 and an average daily distance of 175.8 miles. Critter is now only 200 miles from Cape Horn. Saturday, January 26th. Last night was gorgeous and the sky was littered with stars. The Southern Cross hung above the rigging like a chandelier. This morning, the weather was equally good and I was able to continue my struggle with the mainsail to get the battens and slides back into working order. I've also been able to estimate my position at 54 degrees south, 101 degrees east. The temperature inside is between 39 and 50 Fahrenheit. I prefer not to use the heater, both to save fuel and to prevent too much contrast between outside and inside temperatures. I spent the afternoon working on the mainsail and up the mast trying to rig the halyard. Somehow the pulley hit me hard on the nose again. I activated the little Hondo emergency generator. This will be the last time because I'm just about out of fuel. The weather is uncertain once more and the wind occasionally dies down completely. I then must luff so that the automatic pilot will function. The Honda is now definitely out. Today, Endurance is escorting Critter after having already provided the same service for Great Britain 2 and Sayula 2. These last two boats preceded Critter by only three hours. Adventure and Grand Louis will round the Cape tomorrow. There is also an Italian, Ambrogio Fogar, in surprise, who is rounding the Cape solo. Sunday, January 27th. Another hailstorm during the night reminded me that the weather is not to be trusted. Nonetheless, the sea is beautiful and there is a light wind. After jibing and adjusting the dinghy, I went to sleep at 0500. I woke at 1100 and found the sails are back. I have no idea how long they've been that way. It seems that the closer I get to the cape, the longer I sleep. Is it because of fatigue or am I just using sleep as an escape? During the afternoon, I rigged a wire halyard through the lift pulls and finally got the mainsail aloft with two reefs. It took me four hours to do it. One works so slowly in the cold. And it really is cold. The water temperature must be about 39 Fahrenheit. As far as the exterior temperature is concerned, the thermometer is not altogether reliable because of the wind chill factor and also because I am usually soaked when I'm topside and it seems much colder than it really is. Fortunately, 
I knew beforehand about this problem and was able to give some thought to how best to protect myself. I'm trying to use the heater as little as possible in the cabin because I don't want too much difference between the temperature inside and the temperature outside. Otherwise, the transition would be too difficult. It seems that I'm going in and out every few minutes. The inside temperature is there for about 46 Fahrenheit. I'm delighted that I'm used to the cold. With a generator on the blink, I'd really be miserable if I had to warm in order to be comfortable. My only source of heat is now my fire brick, which I heat over the fire. I'm very pleased with it. Of course, I dress warmly using several layers of clothing, and on the whole, I can't complain. Another anti-cold factor, my beard. In tropical waters, I could never go for more than five days without shaving. Here, however, I have let my beard grow and it seems to at least make me feel warmer. It also serves as a scarf to keep the wind from getting under the hood of my oilskins. I did have an absorbent muffler, which froze the first time it got soaked. Just about every oilskin that I've ever seen has the same defect. It lets water get in between the hood and the jacket. I hope to be able to do something about this when I get back. Be that as it may, I do have some very sophisticated clothing to protect me from the cold. My friends at Equinox make sailing gear and since they do a lot of sailing themselves, they've asked me to work with them on a material that would make life easier for sailors. And since I was going across some very difficult areas, the Howling Fifties for example, they provided me with a double set of thermal clothing, a wardrobe that is both traditional and experimental. I'm making voluminous notes on my reactions. I had also given a good deal of thought to the problem of humidity and condensation, which so often gave me trouble. Teura found a fabric in Paris with a lining that served as padding and an exterior side impervious to humidity. The condensation, therefore, ran forward into the storage compartment used for sales, which was always damp in any case. I also use waterproof sleeping bags. However, even when I am going to sleep only for a couple of hours, as I usually do, I want to get as much rest as I possibly can. For that reason, I try to make the conditions for sleep ideal. I put on pyjamas and I use sheets and blankets. The idea is to duplicate normal sleeping conditions as much as can be done in the circumstances. There are times, of course, when I have to forgo these little luxuries and fall into bed fully clothed. It also happens that I don't have time really to sleep, only to stretch out for a few minutes of rest. I then use special covers, one side of which is waterproof, so that I can lie down, even wearing my oilskins, without soaking the whole bed. When the sea is too rough for sleeping in a conventional berth, I rig up a kind of cocoon in the berth. It consists of panels of cloth sewn to the side of the chest. Two steel tubes are threaded through the ends of these panels and attached to the ceiling. The whole thing resembles a sheath, and it is impossible for me then to be thrown out of bed. The only way to open the cocoon is from the inside by unfastening a series of clasps. Any consideration of the comforts of home must obviously include some mention of food. I do not hesitate for a minute to admit that meals play a very important part in my scheme of things and have much to do with my morale when I am sailing solo. I've already described what I did before leaving San Marlo in order to make Manoreva's living quarters comfortable. After all, the machinery of the human body requires the same kind of care as any delicate motor every part of which must be maintained if the motor as a whole is to function properly. The stomach is a very important part indeed of the body, and it cannot be neglected without detriment to morale and mood. It goes without saying that I made absolutely certain to lay in ample stores of food and water, even while keeping in mind the objectives that I set for myself as far as speed was concerned, 
I chose to increase the weight of Manareva rather than have to worry about having enough food and especially fresh water aboard. I was determined to have a two-month supply of both so that if Manareva lost both her masts and was transformed into nothing more than a triple pontoon or even if she capsized, I would have enough food and water on hand to be able to wait with peace of mind to drift ashore or for a freighter to show up. I also always have a supply of grapefruits, lemons, onions and a large reserve of water of which I use approximately two and a half litres a day. In addition to the fresh food that I took aboard at San Marlo and again at Sydney, my friend Roger, who has a restaurant at Saint-Germain-de-Pré, and my mother, with Teora's help, prepared various dishes which they put up in glass jars. These dishes are almost enough by themselves to last two months at sea, and they certainly help to keep my insides in working order. I'm not about to forget that November day in the Indian Ocean when my mother's pigeon or champignons gave my morale the boost so sorely needed at the time. The most important consideration, I think, is the absolute relaxation that I get from spending time in my little galley preparing meals for myself. I have two more or less sacred corners inside Manareva. The first is the chart table, which is a large desk with a revolving chair. When I sit there, I am surrounded by familiar objects brought aboard both for their usefulness and for their decorative value. Photographs, mementos, knick-knacks of various kinds, many of them from Tahiti. The second spot is my galley, with its sink, racks and gas stove, all of which I can reach from a stool attached to the port berth, which also serves as a pantry. Fresh water comes from a jerry can, and I can pump it directly into the sink by using a pedal at the base of the stool. Salt water can also be pumped into the sink in the same way. There are times when I feel a need, not for any kind of prepared food that I have only to heat, but for something that I can spend time fixing myself, a special sauce, an onion fricassee, anything I feel like. The idea is not only to have a special treat, but to relax. So much so that it is usually when I am worried about the wind or when it seems that the waves are about to get the better of Manareva, rather than when I have a bit of leisure time on my hands, that I get busy in the galley. At such times, I make an effort to steal time away from the helm in order to relax, so that I will be rested in both mind and body if a real crisis should arise. I have the feeling, and sometimes it's a very strange feeling, that something inside me lets me know when I absolutely must relax, just as I occasionally have the feeling that Manareva is telling me that she needs a few minutes of rest to catch her breath, or that she feels like going at full speed for a while. It may sound ridiculous, but I really believe that captain and boat must be tuned to each other if they're going to make a go of it together, and that this mutual understanding is based both on habit and on an intuition that is impossible to explain. Finally, let me rise a bit above all this talk of food to say a few words about the culinary philosophy of the solo sailor. It should be obvious by now that I enjoy food. My enjoyment, however, is not only because of the pleasant sensation that one experiences directly while eating, it is also because, for someone alone, the preparation of good food affords a moment of intense communion with others. At that moment, it is as though I am with my friends and my family. In my mind's eye, I see my mother or Teora doing things for me, choosing this or that food, preparing something they know I like in order to communicate to me, when I open the can or the jar, their love. At such moments, I am no longer alone on the sea. One thought leads to another, and a whole series of memories goes through my mind so that I am in touch with my loved ones via the road that leads from the kitchen to the affections. 
If it is true that the heart is warmed by the heat of recollected love, it is also true that, after working topside, when I go below soaked and chilled to the bone, it is an indescribable comfort for me to be in a warm, dry place. The gas fire is on, sometimes my fire brick is on the flames and something good is simmering on the stove beside the brick. The atmosphere is conducive to pleasant associations and good memories, which is why I thought it important to describe in some detail how much good it does to the solitary mariner. In any event, during the trip from San Marlo to Sydney, I lost very little weight. No matter how rough the sea was, I always made an effort to prepare real meals for myself. When that was impossible, I had to settle for heating a casserole, which I would eat while wearing my oilskins, just in case a sudden pitch or roll sent the whole thing into my lap. Frankly, if the time had come when I was reduced to a ration of dried salami or canned goods, I don't know if I would have the moral strength to bear it. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.